The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Hello, it's so great to be with you. I'm already inspired just by listening to you all. I'll see you all out here. Um, great to be here from Florida so that I can see the sun when I go back. Um, <laughs> no, it's really great to, to be here in honor. And thanks for what you all are doing as you gather. Uh, I'd actually thought about opening with telling you about something else, but seeing you be here and watching you and hearing about the kind of things you're involved in, I was just sitting in the back thinking about my friend Erwin. I want to tell you about Erwin. I met Erwin, a Haitian woman, uh, six years ago. And when I first met Erwin, we were just launching a new program in Haiti where we'd give scholarships for Haitian students to go to get an undergraduate degree at a Haitian seminary. So these young, promising Haitian students who had made it through high school, only about 5% of Haitians graduate from high school, only about 50% ever get to go to school. Erwin had made it through high school, and she's this promising young leader, and we were the, had the chance to give her a scholarship. One of my Haitian colleagues did the interviewing and chose her, and I went to the first meeting, and I met these 15 Haitians who were getting scholarships with Haiti partners. We get to mentor them, bring them into this program, and I met them all, and I was so impressed by 14 of them, and Erwin was just sitting in the corner, and she wouldn't really talk with me. She wouldn't really talk with anybody, and I thought, well, 14 out of 15 isn't too bad for uh, launching this program and giving people scholarships, so I was a little disappointed. Three years later, I was in a room with Erwin, and she was telling me this story. Uh, she had gone to lead a Bible study uh, in Haiti, a woman, young woman in a patriarchal society that's dominated by men leading a Bible study. Already, that's a, a risk. And then she wasn't just leading a Bible study, thinking, you know, just platitudes about the Bible. She was leading a Bible study about children's rights. And specifically in Haiti, there are about 200,000 children who live in servant or even slave-like conditions. It's called being a restivec. And these children are sent away from their homes, usually under false promises, to live with another family. Um, and this other family then often exploits them for free labor. Um, their own families can't support them. They're exploited with labor. They're living away. These are eight, nine, twelve-year-old kids living away from their family with another family who's exploiting them, and they're often abused in horrible ways. Erwin was leading a Bible study about this topic of Restavex, a topic you aren't really supposed to talk about in many Haitian churches. A young woman leading this topic, this woman who a couple of years earlier wouldn't talk with any of us. As she finishes up the Bible study, there's an older woman in the class, and this older woman sort of starts to talk and says, you know, we have a Restavex girl who lives with my daughter and we don't treat her well at all. And this older woman starts to cry, feeling convicted by the spirit, by Erwin's leadership. And she says, I think we need to do something about it. As Ryan said, this faith in action, her faith, this older woman's faith, awakened by Erwin's faith of taking on this topic. Erwin then leads this Bible study group through and the end of that story is that this young woman, this young girl who has been exploited as a Restavec, 
was then taken back to live with her own family. And the, the family that had been exploiting her for free labor is now paying for her to go to school and live with her own family. Erwin, this young woman who saw that her faith needs to be in action, especially for people who are most vulnerable. When I was in Haiti just a few weeks ago, Erwin's graduated now. She got her undergraduate degree, the first person in her family who's ever gone that, gone that far in education. I was with Erwin a month ago. Um, and talking with her and catching up with her. And then she told me this story. She, in the town where she lived in, she came to Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, to study. But then they had sort of been paying attention, and back in the, the city, a couple hours away where she lived, there had been an orphanage started in her city. And this, this happens too often in these kind of places where people are vulnerable. This was an orphanage. It's an awful story. But uh, a woman, a Haitian-American woman, had started this orphanage by going and taking children from another village who had parents and promising them a better life, took all these children from their parents and started an orphanage where these children were basically exploited for foreigners who didn't know much would come down and support this orphanage, but she was barely feeding the kids. These kids were on the edge of starving, except they'd kind of dress them up and make them look good when foreigners came. So this situation, and Erwin and her family, because of the work she'd done in our program with Haiti Partners, said, this isn't right. And they tried to work as a family to get this changed. And they kept on trying. They tried to go to the police and nothing happened. And they worked for four years to try to get someone to pay attention to this orphanage and the way it was exploiting these young children. Finally, just this past year, Erin was telling me they got the orphanage shut down. But it didn't come without a cost. Uh, Erwin and her family testified in court and they knew the risks involved in this, of stepping up to protect children against someone who had some power. And uh, Erwin, they testified in court, they talked with the police, and they found out that the woman whose orphanage was going to be shut down put out a contract on their lives with some people in gangs who lived in their town. And fortunately, one of the people who was paid to kill them knew the family and came and warned them and let them know and they were okay, and then they reported the others, and they were okay. And I asked Erwin, and she told me this story, and I thought about this woman I knew six years ago who could would barely talk, and then she started doing Bible studies, and now this. I said, did you ever at any point get scared or just consider, shouldn't you stop doing this? Is this too risky? And she said, well, my friends were telling me I, I shouldn't do it. It's too much risk, and, and it was risky. And she said, no, but this is our call. Our call is to protect people who can't protect themselves. Our call is to love people who no one else is loving. This is how we follow Jesus. And I was willing to risk everything to follow Jesus in this way, to love these children in my town. It's been amazing to watch the transformation in Erwin's life, and it's an honor to get to be a small part of that, of watching her grow. But one of the other things I've learned with Erwin and the other people I work with in Haiti is change doesn't come fast. And you have all these great opportunities and the internship, which is fantastic, I hope some of you will apply for, and these trips to Nicaragua and Dominican Republic that I hope you'll be going on. 
But all these, I think we need to go into these with the, the idealism that we can be part of it and it's important and it's transformative, but also with the perspective that change takes time, any change that's important. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed and taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And 2,000 years after Jesus has prayed that prayer, there are still children being exploited in Haiti. 2,000 years after that prayer, we still see what's happening to refugees coming out of Syria. 2,000 years after that prayer, we still see an innocent young black man assaulted as though guilty. This kingdom coming that Jesus prayed for is a slow kingdom coming. I think this can be discouraging, but I don't want you to be discouraged by the fact that you're entering into this life of following Jesus, that it's a slow kingdom coming. I think what this can do is help to steal us for the long work of discipleship that's ahead. This responding, as you've looked at with Ryan to Romans 12, responding to God's mercy by showing mercy in our lives. So I wrote a book this past year that came out called Slow Kingdom Coming. It's become a really helpful phrase to me. One, it's a phrase that means to me it's important to lament, to be sad if we're going to care about God's kingdom and about justice in this world. Too many people suffer too much for too long. That's reality. But it's also important to hold on to the hope that this is a kingdom coming, a slow kingdom coming, but a kingdom coming that God's promise is that this transformation will continue to happen in our lives and in our world. And finally, it's a slow kingdom coming. So I think a question for us is, how do we commit to participating in this kingdom coming? How can we do it? I've learned a lot about this slow kingdom coming by being involved in Haiti, like Ryan mentioned. So 13 years ago, my wife and I, we'd just been married for two years. We went to visit my parents who lived in Toronto at the time. We, they drove us to the airport. We took off our winter jackets in the car, got into, ran into the airport, got on a plane. Within 24 hours, we were living out in the countryside in Haiti, uh, with a farming family, no running water, no electricity, tin roof over our heads. Uh, we had one little room in this four-room house that we shared with the family. They didn't speak any English. Uh, we didn't speak any Creole, and we lived with them for seven months. And that's how we went in to learn how to serve for the long haul in Haiti. And that's where I've gotten to work with people like Erwin and others and see their commitment and their faithfulness as Christians, working tr for transformation, as Ryan said, in this place where change comes slow but there's reason for hope, and you see hope blossom up in all these beautiful ways. Now, I've been working in Haiti for the last 13 years, and times encouraged and times discouraged. One of the stories in the Bible has become really meaningful for me. It's one that I think I'd heard dozens of times before, and it hadn't really meant that much. But now it's become one of the most important stories for me about Jesus. So one day, Jesus uh, is walking with his friends, with his disciples, and he comes to this town of Bethsaida. They get into town, and I imagine Jesus and his disciples just wanting to find shade and get some water to drink, maybe wash their faces, wash their feet off from the dust. But they get in, and stories about Jesus are starting to make their way around. So they get in, wanting to rest, but a group comes up, and they bring their friend along, their friend who's blind. 
So they come up and say, Jesus, this, this friend of ours, he's blind. Can you heal him? Can you help him out? And Jesus doesn't answer with much, but, but the scripture says he takes him by the hand and they walk to the edge of the village. So they walk hand in hand to the edge of the village, step by step along the way. And they get to the edge of the village and Jesus puts spit on the man's eyes and puts his hands on his eyes and takes him off and says, can you see now? And this man who is blind says, kind of. I can sort of see, but they're people, they look kind of blurry like trees. It didn't quite work all the way, Jesus. And so Jesus puts his hands back on his eyes and then takes them off and says, how about now? Can you see now? And the man says, yes, now I can see. Now I can see clearly. What I love about this story is that it's a story about gradual healing. And I think if sometimes the most inspiring stories are the story that will get you out involved in justice is a story of instant healing. But I think the stories that might keep you in it for the long haul, to keep going in the internship, to, to not just go once to the Dominican Republic, but to go a second time and a third time, and to keep going and see if you're involved in missions or whatever your vocation is, how you can be involved in justice, are these stories of gradual healing. The way I imagine the story, if it were me, is the next day when the blind man woke up, he might have needed yet another tune-up. Maybe Jesus had to put his hands on his eyes one more time so he could just see a little bit more clearly, too. As we're healed, we get to participate in God's kingdom coming. We get to participate in responding to God's mercy to us by showing mercy to other people. And as that happens, I think we get formed in the two great loves of our lives, the two great loves that need to be cultivated in all of our lives as followers of Jesus. One of those is our love of God. How are you cultivating your love of God and being here and worshiping together? And what are you doing on Sundays? And are you praying and reading scripture and these different things that can help your love of God grow? And the other is our love of neighbor. How do we keep growing in our love of our neighbors so that we can keep getting better at helping our neighbors? And what I've learned is I've done this now for 23 years since I graduated from college, same age as you, and first moved to work with the refugee ministry in Europe. Uh, I've learned these five practices that have been really helpful to me that I think, I hope, could be helpful for you in an internship as you're involved in uh, these different ministry teams. If you go on the trip this summer to help you do two things, one, to be shaped by God and grow in your love for God, and also to be good at loving your neighbors. So here are five practices to to give you. First practice is a practice of attention. The French theologian of last century said, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. It's incredibly generous to give your attention somewhere. And I think this stage of life is so exciting for you because you get to listen for where God's calling your attention, how you're going to serve, who you serve this semester, who you serve in your vocation as you graduate. How do we practice attention, see where God's awakening you to justice so that you can get involved and respond to God's mercy in that way? That's the first practice. The second practice is a practice of confession. So this isn't often talked about in the work of justice, but here's how I think of it. 
Often when we hear stories about justice, or at least I did when I was first getting started, is you think about going out to give people a hand up or going out to sort of rescue someone or change someone's life and going on a mission trip and doing it that way. And I've seen a lot of that, and I've also seen a lot of that burn out and not lead to very good places in my own life and other people's lives, to think of us as the people going to save others. So instead, what I've found, the right posture for engaging and working with other people for justice is more a posture of confession. So I've always found that the way that I can help other people is to be confessing, confessing my privilege. I'm in Haiti that I... I know how to read and write. I have a passport that lets me travel. I have enough calories to eat today. I confess when I get compassion fatigue, when I just feel like I can't take any more bad news on the Facebook feed, in the world, what's happening. I confess that I like to feel good when I help other people. And that's not a bad thing. I think God created us that way. But I confess that I want to feel good when I help other people. What's most important is that I help other people well. As I confess these things, I find a couple things happen. One is that I can be transformed in approaching God in this way. And I also find that I can help other people better because then I'm not going to transform and change somebody's life as though I'm Jesus. I'm going together so that our lives can be transformed together. Confession. You practice confession in the work of justice, I think it leads us in beautiful, beautiful ways as we're humble before God. Next practice is a practice of respect. So we're invited to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus tells us to do. But I think that takes more thoughtfulness and, and takes time and takes listening to other people. I've learned about this in Haiti. I'll teach you a a Haitian uh, word in, in this custom. And I think Ryan probably did this when he was out in the countryside in Haiti. So in Haiti, when you go to visit somebody in their home, and especially out in the village, you don't just walk into their front yard because the yard is where a lot of life happens. It would be like bursting into someone's front door in Seattle without knocking. So you pause at the edge of the yard, and you pause there and you say, Oner, which means honor. And then you wait and don't cross over and go into the yard until you hear the word respect which means respect. So it's a way of pausing and saying, I'm coming with honor for you and for your values and who you are. And then we don't just try to go in and burst and save them or help them, but then there's that pause to see if people really want your visit and want your help and that they're going to respect you and that together you can move forward in a relationship. So that honor, respect can be a part of how you work with people, uh, like we were talking about with this internship, or as you go down to Haiti, honor, respect, how do we grow and deepen in the way we love our neighbors as ourselves? A fourth practice that I find really helpful is a practice of partnering. As we partner with each other, we grow so that we're not partnering for other people, we're partnering with other people so we can be transformed and living in this life with God together. And all this leads to a fifth practice, a practice of truthing. And truthing isn't a word that I made up. It's not a word that Stephen Colbert made up. Um, it's actually a scientific word I learned reading a science journal a few years ago. And it's a practice, it's a, a scientific word where a geologist or someone who studies will take aerial images from a plane or from a satellite 
And then they don't really think that they have the, the whole story until they then take that image and they're actually walking the ground. So they have the image and the true thing is when they're then walking the ground, comparing reality on the ground with this image. For me, this is, I only found the word a few years ago, but because of mentors and other people I worked with, this has been a really valuable practice for me. And I think it can be for you as you grow in following Jesus and in loving your neighbors. One of the people I learned this from first is a guy named Scott who lived in Athens, worked with refugees there. And I went to spend time with Scott and there was something special about his, his ministry with refugees. And I couldn't figure out why. And I asked him what he did and what was different and why there was this kind of extra element there. And eventually I found out one of the things Scott did when he first got involved there, he was married. He had three kids. They lived in a small apartment in Athens, but Scott spent one week, one summer and one week, one winter going out to live with the refugees that he was serving in Athens. So he took $5 along with him. In the winter, he didn't take a jacket because the refugees didn't have a jacket. He slept on the subway grate because that's how they, where they slept to stay warm. And uh, he lived with them. And I think two things happened that I saw the results of that. One is he got better at serving them. He learned it was they could get food. There were enough places doing food, but there was no place that had a shower. It was just impossible for them to get showers, so they built some showers. And then the second thing that happened is his love for them kind of entered more deeply into the marrow of his bones. And that had an influence on me and the way my wife and I went to Haiti and lived with that family because we wanted to be as good as possible at living and loving and helping them. And we also wanted our love for them to grow so true thing. So I wanted to learn about this, and I had this name and read about this scientific process. So I went out with a scientist to the central Florida, and in the middle of Florida is just this big swamp that runs down the middle called the Everglades. And so I went out to meet this scientist who was doing true thing, and he was studying the grasses that were growing out there. And I thought, maybe this will give some insight into how we can be followers of Jesus and so I went with him. I walked to the end of the dock. There's this crazy machine, one of those fan boats and tubes and a huge fan. And I climbed on and strapped in and put on ear protectors. And we took off down these canals deep into the Everglades, like in the middle of nowhere. Uh, as we're going, there are these 10-foot alligators like slipping into the water as we go past them. And I was thinking, I've seen this movie before, and it never ends well. <laughs> And so we get out there and spend a day doing this true thing. I'm thinking about how this relates to, to what we do. And I think that this place where you are as followers of Jesus. And at the end of the day, this little section I wrote about, when he was done as true thing, we put our earplugs back in and he fired up the airboat. But we only moved forward a few feet. He tried again. We were stuck. He got out. The grass was thick and the water was shallow. He trampled it down. We tried again. I got out and trampled with him. I didn't say what I was thinking. This seemed too thick for an alligator. And I was glad he had said earlier that the pythons and the Everglades hadn't been seen this far north yet. Everything was quiet. After a few minutes, the frogs restarted their grunting and the birds came out from hiding and started singing. We could then better see the complexity because we were taking time on the ground a reminder as we practice truthing that our presence can affect what we see around us. Finally, he cranked the fan all the way up while I stood on the grass and pushed the side of the boat. It started moving. I pushed along and sloshed through grass and water and then jumped in. We were off again. Truthing involves getting stuck. 
coming to our wit's end, needing to help each other out. Truthing leads us to be persistent but patient. It's a practice that asks us to push into complexity, seek clarity, and yet accept ambiguity. We receive failure as grace. We pray, we evaluate, we discover new ways to help each other. We work by faith and by sight. Jesus said the truth will set you free. The novelist David Foster Wallace wrote, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Indeed, we don't want truth to be finished with us. We want our lives to be shaped by truth, though the process is not always gentle or pleasant. We practice truthing because it helps us to be good stewards as we work for transformation of the world with our neighbors. We practice truthing because whatever we follow is what we're transformed by. And so we want to follow truth and follow the one who is truth, who is life. As we follow the one who is truth and who is life, we have the strength to keep going, even though the kingdom is slow coming. And I think we will almost always receive these moments of grace, of encouragement about what happens along the way. Soon after we'd been in Haiti, a hurricane came through. Not this most recent one, but back about 11 years ago, a hurricane came through Haiti, and the winds didn't hit too hard, but floods, waters came down, rushing down the the mountains and flooded a city of Gonaive. About a thousand people died. It happened about a week before, and we there was nothing we could do. We didn't have the resources to help out, and the city was surrounded by water still after a week, and people couldn't get in or out. It was tragic to hear about this disaster so close that we couldn't do anything to help with. But then as, as it's, we just realized we couldn't help with that, we had to keep on doing our work, our work of education that we do uh, in Haiti Partners. So I went with a couple of Haitian colleagues to do a seminar pretty close to where this city of Gonaive is. We got there, we did the seminar, and then we were leaving. We went to catch public, public transportation back, and it was kind of dangerous in Port-au-Prince at that time, so we were nervous as the sun was going down. It was taking time to find transportation. You didn't want to be out in the streets after dark at that time. And then we uh, finally, a truck comes by. It's probably like a bakery delivery truck or something in a previous life, and it became a public transportation vehicle there. And so about 50 or 60 of us piled into the back of this truck. I got a little narrow slice of bench up towards the front, and people are standing, you know, holding a rail in the middle. People are sitting on both sides. If I moved my ankle too far to the left or right, the chickens would let me know that was their territory with the peck on the ankle. And so we're bouncing along towards Port-au-Prince. And as we bounce along, people, uh, people then, even now, but people then didn't have smartphones. And so they were actually talking with each other. Um, and so we're having these conversations. And pretty quickly, conversation goes to the city of Gonaive. We're right nearby that people can get in and out. And people are saying, oh, how tragic. And, and the loss and what happened and the stories that were coming out on the radio. And there's this young man, just a little bit older than you, who's standing in the middle, he's holding the rail, and he says, I'm from Gonaive, I just got out. And he must have like made his way through just so much mud and water to get out of the city when people weren't getting in and out. And kind of noticed once he said that, that he was dirty, we hadn't noticed we were all so crowded together. 
And so people start asking him questions like, what's it like? And, and what did you see? And he starts to talk about that night and the water rushing in to carry the living away to join the dead. And he talks about scrambling up to the roof of his house and having to leave his mother and sisters behind as he went to Port-au-Prince now to try to get supplies to bring back. And eventually he looks at himself, he says, oh, these, these clothes, I've been wearing them since the flood. I've been wearing them for eight days now. He keeps talking, people keep asking him questions. As he keeps going, there's a young man, another man kind of bouncing along and uh, reaches into his bag and hands the young man a shirt. Some of these market women who are in all in the market all day selling their goods, and they're probably selling all day in the hot sun to earn two or three dollars. Uh, about eighty percent of people in Haiti live on less than two dollars a day, so maybe they earned a couple dollars to try to feed and take care of their family with. So one of these women says, "Oh, take off your old shirt, put the new one on." So he takes it off, puts a new one on, and as he's doing that. Someone else reaches into their bag and pulls out a, a pair of shorts. And then someone else reaches into their bag and pulls out a bar of soap. And someone else reaches in and, and finds a comb. And someone else pulls out flip-flops, their own flip-flops. Sometimes we bounce along these people, this group of people living on the edge of survival, are starting to take care of and rally around this young man who doesn't have anything. We keep bouncing along. Then one of these market women gets up off the floor and she reaches into the fold of her skirt where they often keep their money and she takes out maybe a 50 good note, uh, maybe worth 70 or 80 cents. She puts it in her hand. It's maybe most of the money that she had earned that day to take care of her family. But she saw this young man in even more need. She puts it in her hand and then she starts squeezing around to everybody on the back of that truck. Just give what you can. Give five goods. Give... 10 goods, get 50 goods, just give what you can to help them out. She squeezes around and I'm watching and I'm the only American, it's all Haitians and I see everybody on that bus get, give out of what little they have to help this young man out. And the story of, you remember that story of Jesus telling the story of this, this widow in the temple who gives her two mites or two little coins, everything she has. He says, that's the one who really gets it, what's the kingdom of God is. And so she keeps going around and everybody's giving. And so she ends up making her way, squeezing through and gets back to this young man. And she now has a fistful of coins and bills and she gives it to this young man who's just lost everything. And he's there and he accepts it and he's holding it. And he says, Pakone, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what I can say. And then he starts to cry. And he's just there weeping the generosity that these people who had almost nothing gave so much to him. And as he's crying, some of the, a couple of these women say, No, no, you don't have to cry. We're all go naiveans now. We just wish we had more to give. And I think, sisters and brothers here at the inn, we're all God's children now. We're all people of God's kingdom now. We all get to respond 
to God's mercy and kindness by showing mercy and kindness to others. This is our invitation. It's a demanding invitation. I think there are ways and practices that can help us keep going for the long run. But I also want you to know that it's the best invitation out there. It's the invitation to the good life. It's an invitation to the way of Jesus. And I pray this is an invitation that you keep, can keep growing on and keep living out in many different ways as you follow Jesus into this kingdom coming. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for each one of these students. I'm inspired by them. Um, the, the questions they're asking, the faithfulness with which they're seeking, the ways they're learning how to serve you and serve other people. May you keep giving them grace. May your mercy and kindness keep uh, showing up every day in their lives. May you keep leading them into ways for them to show mercy and kindness uh, to the people around them. We pray all this with hope. We pray all this with the hope that your kingdom is coming uh, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.